When you sin, and you know you've sinned, how do you feel in the moments that follow? How do you view your sin? How do you see yourself as guilty, dirty, broken? Or actually, most importantly, what is your view of God in those moments after you've sinned? Do you believe that he is disappointed with you? Shaking his head, ashamed of you. Do you perhaps think that he's overbearing, too strict with his expectations of you? Or do you maybe see him as angry at you, fuming, can't believe that you messed up again? I want to shift our paradigms this morning by looking at the true heart of Jesus and our God for sinners. In other words, his heart for people just like you and just like me. When someone in their right mind is about to die, their last words are often quite meaningful. Because they know they have very few words left, and so they choose them carefully. And the people who are left behind often cherish those words, hanging on to them. When Jesus died, his last words carried a huge amount of power and significance. He knew he only had a handful of words. He only had a handful of breaths left on earth. And he chose to use several of them to breathe out a series of final words. Words that really would alter history, would change lives, and would be cherished by his people ever since. This year, leading up to Good Friday and Easter, we'll be looking at these last words of Jesus. I'm calling this series Crosswords. The, the words of Christ that he proclaimed from the cross, and words that I believe should leave a lasting mark on every one of our lives. Today, to begin, I'll have us turn to Luke 23 together. Luke chapter 23, and if you need help finding that, there's Bibles in the seat pocket or the seat back in front of you, and then the page number's on the screen, page 884. At this point in Jesus' story, Jesus has had his last supper with his disciples. He gave his farewell discourse, sermon. He went to pray in anguish in Gethsemane. Judas has led a mob to arrest Jesus, and he was then hastily tried before the Jewish leaders for blasphemy. But they couldn't legally execute him, so they brought him to be tried for treason, by the Roman governor, Pilate. But Pilate found Jesus innocent, sent him away to be dealt with by the puppet king of the area, Herod. Herod just wanted to be entertained by Jesus and passed him back to Pilate, who then reluctantly made a deal with a Jewish mob to sentence Jesus to death. He was flogged, beaten, mocked, and paraded off to Calvary. And we'll pick up the story in verse 32. Verse 32, it says, 
Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. Now notice how Luke discreetly doesn't give us too much details about crucifixion itself here. All four gospel accounts do the same, emphasizing other things. And in their day, crucifixion was common enough that they didn't really need to describe it. And they also likely wanted to avoid being gruesome and so be respectful of the event that had happened. However, if we, who are so far distant from these days, if we are to picture these scenes accurately and hear Jesus' words as they were spoken, we do need to understand some of what he would have been experiencing at the cross. The Roman orator Cicero called crucifixion the cruelest and most hideous punishment. Victims were usually flogged before being made, just like Jesus, to, to carry the 100-pound crossbeam of their cross on their lacerated shoulders to their execution site. There they would be laid down, their arms would be tied or nailed to the crossbeam, which was then hoisted up and jolted into place on a permanent upright post forming the cross. There, breathing would be increasingly shallow and painful. But the Romans didn't want people to die quickly. They wanted prolonged agony. So they avoided, for example, vital arteries with their nails so as to not allow rapid blood loss. Also, a a small ledge was placed on the upright beam to partially support your weight so your body couldn't collapse and perish too quickly. Some victims survived on crosses for days. And in the end, you would die from exhaustion, suffocation, blood loss, and or cardiac arrest. Whenever the Romans wanted to put a merciful end to things, they would break your legs so you could no longer heave yourself up to breathe. Now, as we consider the sayings of Jesus from the cross over these next several weeks, it's of special relevance that speaking would have been immensely difficult for Christ. So hard to speak. And that's just the physical torture. Crucifixion was designed to torment and humiliate. You would be affixed to a cross in nakedness, usually, while being constantly ridiculed, knowing that you likely won't be buried in honor, rather become food for scavenger animals. We live in a time and place where inhumane treatment, even of criminals, is against the law. So, it can be hard to even imagine crucifixion happening, let alone being state-sanctioned. This wasn't carried out secretly or scandalously. It was done in the wide-open public, intentionally meant to be horrifying 
obscene, repulsive to onlookers. And anyone who was crucified was certain to be seen as loathsome. That's important to note. As Fleming Rutledge explains, that in an era when crucifixion was still going on and was widely practiced throughout the Roman Empire, Christians were proclaiming a degraded, condemned, crucified person as the Son of God and Savior of the world. By any ordinary standard, and especially by religious standards, this was simply unthinkable. Here is one of the most powerful arguments for the truth of the Christian faith. The human religious imagination could not have arrived at a notion so utterly foreign to generally accepted spiritual ideas as that of a crucified Messiah. Now I know that the details of the cross can be disturbing. They should be. Today, the cross has become a a sentimentalized symbol for decorations and jewelry. And that's okay, because Jesus actually totally transformed this symbol into something good. However, we can't overlook what it meant for Jesus to go through this wickedness, Cruelty, judgment, shame, humiliation, torture, relentless pain. Like his mind must have been consumed by anguish and disorientation, even dread. So, picturing all of this, that's all contained in those two verses there. Just picture all that. Now let's read the first of his last words in verse 34. So when they came to the place that's called the soul there, they crucified him, verse 34, and Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Now if I was up on a cross and suffering this agony, I can't imagine saying this. If I got any words out, They'd probably be something like, how dare you? Or, you're going to pay for this. Or, please, put me out of my misery. If I prayed, it'd probably be an imprecatory prayer. God, avenge me. I can't imagine looking down at people who just turned me into a bloody pulp and praying, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And yet that's what Jesus shockingly did. Why? I have no answer outside of pure, supernatural, astonishing compassion and mercy. And in this, I believe we can see Christ's heart for sinners, even extreme sinners. Jesus wants to forgive sinners. Jesus clearly wants to forgive sinners. My wife and I recently got back from an anniversary getaway. And on this trip, we had to to pack and lug around several bags of luggage. And you know how it is can start out a day with a bag that seems pretty light, but by the end of the day, the bag seems much heavier and more of a burden to you. Now, that, that's trivial stuff. 
But there is a very serious reality in our lives that's like this. So many people, including many of us, are lugging around heavy burdens of guilt, shame, bitterness, pain, anxiety, anger, and offense. And they may have started off seeming really small. But over time, our hearts have become more and more heavily burdened by them. Like how many of us have deep regrets from things that happened years or even decades ago? How many of us are, are clinging to grudges over hurts that somebody caused us? How many of us have avoided people around us, resisted reconciliation, maybe even switched churches because we can't let go of either guilt or offense? How many of us have tried to fix things ourselves, either with God or with others? How'd that go? Has it, has it provided you with a lasting peace in your soul. For all of the above, we desperately need to experience and extend forgiveness. As Robert Nash says, people make jokes, tell lies, and brainwash themselves into thinking they are fine, or events never happened, or if they did, they're not that big of a deal. However, people don't really move on. They just bury their problems. People come up with do-it-yourself solutions to their hurt and sin and miss God's remedy. Jesus confronts our attempts to fix ourselves and presents the only path of peace. And think about it. Jesus often spoke about forgiveness during his time on earth. He taught us to, to pray for it. Father, forgive us our debts as we forgive those and we forgive those who sin against us or forgive our debtors he taught us well, he did that while warning us that god will only forgive us to the extent that we forgive others he taught us that that there's no limit to how much we ought to forgive 70 times 7 over and over and over again he told parables, powerful parables, like the unforgiving servant in Matthew 18 to make this point. He even went around proclaiming or pronouncing forgiveness of sins to various people. But none of his teaching about forgiveness prepares us for this stunning extension of forgiveness, even to his killers. Father, Forgive them, for they know not what they do. Think through this saying, word by word. At first he says, Father. He's addressing his prayer to God the Father. Now, question for you. Who is allowed to forgive sins? Well, on, on one level, we can forgive each other for sins committed against us. Right? That's true. But on another level, more importantly, all sin is ultimately committed against God. 
He is the creator who made the world to operate in a certain way. He's the lawgiver whose law gets trampled on every day. And he is God worthy of devotion and worship from every creature that he has created. So even when we sin against others, we're going against the way that God created the world to be. We're breaking his laws of love and we're not living for him. We're really idolatrously centering our lives around ourselves. Imagine, just imagine if someone did something to you. Let's say they stole your bike or your phone, okay? And then one day, you and I together came across this person's path. And instead of letting you, the aggrieved party talk, I speak up and say, hey, that was a nasty thing to do to my friends here. But I forgive you. You'd look at me like I was crazy. You have no right to do that. In the same way, we have no right to forgive people for their crimes against God. It's his divine prerogative. Which is why when when Jesus told people, your sins are forgiven you, people flipped out. It's like, no one can forgive sins but God alone. So as we come to the cross, this is why Jesus prayed to his Father to forgive sinners, because sinners need forgiveness from God himself, or else we will face his wrath. But that raises another question for us. Why didn't Jesus just forgive them himself? Why did he ask the Father to forgive if he himself had authority on earth to forgive sins? It's a good question. I'd think that he certainly could have forgiven if he chose to, if that's what he wanted to do here. Or, like maybe he wanted to to demonstrate his dependence on his father in these darkest moments. Maybe he, even though Christ was God, this was an example of him emptying himself, choosing not to exercise his divine rights or authority. Really, as as a perfect, as the perfect man, our representative, our substitute, he dying in our place, he took the position of man, pleading with God for mercy. Further, this began filling the, profo- the prophecy of Isaiah 53, 12, that the suffering servant would make intercession for the transgressors. But think about his request. Forgive them. This isn't only what he wanted or desired. He prayed for it. He asked for this to happen. His dying heart's cry and request was that sinners be forgiven, that they be pardoned for their crimes, that their offenses be overlooked, that they'd receive mercy and grace instead of the judgment they deserved. Forgiveness didn't mean forgetting their crimes. It meant not holding them against them. It meant absorbing the pain that they were causing and choosing to bear it himself. Jesus' words here also definitely demonstrate his commitment to prayer. Jesus 
prayed at the beginning of his ministry, and here he is praying at the end of it. Think this carries any lessons for us? And we tend to look down on prayer, thinking of it as the last resort after we tried every other course of option of action. We're treating it like it's the ministry for old ladies to do once they're physically limited. <laughs> but Jesus went there first, frequently. If Jesus saw prayer as so essential that he intentionally prayed for others, even in his agony, how much more should prayer be vital for mere mortals like us? Like we are dependent on God for everything in our lives. We need him. It's the epitome of pride to think we're okay without him and we don't need to pray. <laughs> we need forgiveness for our prayerlessness. But at the same time, even if you are physically limited in what you can do, whether by age or bodily condition, don't disparage prayer or assume you're not doing much when you pray. God may be giving you a little more time on earth specifically for you to pray and perhaps accomplish more by that than all your past activity. So, who is Jesus praying for in this moment? Father, forgive them. Who's them? In this specific context, there are thought to be three possibilities. The execution squad... So the Roman soldiers there, the authorities who orchestrated the crucifixion, or the Jewish nation as a whole who failed to welcome their Messiah. Maybe all three. However, it's kind of a moot question because the point of these words was much larger. This prayer was representative of Christ's attitude toward all sinners. He's not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. And by the end of the day, the Father would answer Jesus' prayer in multiple ways. A thief crucified beside him would believe in Jesus. A soldier presiding over the death would confess, truly this was the Son of God. And if he was referring to the nation as a whole, or the, the world for that matter, his prayer would continue to be answered over the next couple months as 3,000 people repented and were forgiven and baptized at Pentecost. And if you've been forgiven, then his prayer is even being answered to this day. Now, just because Jesus prayed this prayer doesn't mean it was automatically answered for everyone people still had to respond to the forgiveness Jesus secured for them. God offered us forgiveness at the cross, but in order to receive his gift, we still need to turn away from our sins and believe in Christ as our Savior. This means so that the means of forgiveness is accomplished. Reconciliation is freely offered, but it is not guaranteed until Christ is our Lord. Can't you see your need for this today? Like, won't you confess him as Lord today? Jesus being willing to forgive sinners is shocking. Jesus wanting 
to forgive is even more so. But there's something that makes this forgiveness even more shocking than that. And we see it in the second half of his prayer. See, Jesus wants to forgive sinners even when we don't know our need. He wants to forgive us even when we don't know our need for him or for God's pardon. Listen, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. They know not what they do. Now, ignorance is never an excuse for people's sin. Notice they still needed to be forgiven, even for sins they committed in ignorance. But this, surprisingly, is what Jesus appealed to as the basis for forgiveness. Forgive them, for they know not what they do. In modern English, they don't know. They have no idea what they're doing. This could be Jesus taking pure pity on people. Or maybe, in the absence of repentance so far, he was appealing to mitigating circumstances. The soldiers, for example, truly didn't know that they were killing an innocent man sent by God. But sin is sin, whether or not we ever recognize it as sin. It still requires atonement in order to forgive. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. These words were echoed by Peter at Pentecost when he preached, and now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn back that your sins may be blotted out. They know not what they do. What were they actually doing? What did Jesus want forgiven? Well, think about it. It was arguably the worst crime in the history of the world. The evil, brutal execution of the innocent God-man himself. As A.W. Pink describes it, Man had done his worst. The one by whom the world was made had come into it, but the world knew him not. The Lord of glory had tabernacled among men, but he was not wanted. The eyes which sin had blinded saw in him no beauty that he should be desired. Again, and excuse me, again, his enemies attempted his destruction, and now their vile desires are granted them. The fell deed had been done. No ordinary death would suffice for his implacable foes. A death of intense suffering and shame was decided upon. A cross had been secured. The Savior had been nailed to it. Jesus prayed these words knowing that things would get worse yet. As it goes on, it says, they, they cast lots to divide his garments, and the people stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at him, saying, he saved others, let him save himself if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine, and saying, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. 
There was also an inscription over him, this is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. Even if they may have been aware of certain things they were doing, or even they may have been aware of certain things they were doing, they knew they were being cruel, they knew they were being mocking, they knew they were killing, they didn't know the enormity and the gravity of their crime. They had no clue. And it's there, at the lowest point of humanity's evil, that we see Jesus' lips moving. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Even though we weren't present there at Calvary, every one of us here has sins that need to be forgiven and blotted out. We have pride, ingratitude, unbelief, idolatry, blasphemy, sacrilege, Disobedience of authorities, hatred, rage, lust, sexual immorality, stealing, lying, coveting, and much more. Just because you might not have been aware that these were crimes against God doesn't make you innocent of them. There's so much that we don't know that we do. We're really repeating this tragedy. If we were aware of all of our sinful words, actions, motives, and attitudes, I think we'd be crippled by the horror of it all. Our evil is far greater than we know. Besides, we have plenty of sins we do willingly and fully consciously. <laughs> These words from Jesus should show his compassion on you in the midst of your guilt and shame. He looks on you and has pity on you. His compassion runs deeper than our sin. <laughs> and God's standard is so high, impossibly high, but our rebellion runs so deep. Our need is unimaginably great. But behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. <laughs> Our sins sent Christ to the cross just as much as the crowds or the rulers or the soldiers' sins did then. But if those sins of murdering the Son of God can be forgiven, so can all of yours. <laughs> so here I'm praying over you today. Father, forgive him. Forgive her. Forgive them. They know not what they do. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross. And I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, O oh my soul.
If you've never come to the cross and accepted God's forgiveness before, I pray that you would do so today. You don't know how great your need is. You don't know how awful your neglect of God is, or your spurning of Christ and his mercy, or your refusal to receive grace, or your rejection of Jesus' rule, or your indifference to this vital issue of your soul. And yet your eyes may be opening up a bit right now. Like they knew not what they were doing, but that's not totally true of you anymore. And the Spirit of God can help us know our great need even in these moments. So what will you do about it? The question really is, what will you do with Jesus? Will you receive him as Lord and Savior? Or reject him as a raving nutcase. The truth is, he didn't rage against you, even if that is what you deserved. He didn't seek vengeance for your vileness. He prayed for your pardon. And some of us here may not need reminded of this. Reminded of our need. Because you feel haunted by your sin persistently. You, you can't seem to ditch it or defeat it for good. And thus you feel constant guilt. I've been there many times myself, feeling down and out, ashamed, and condemned. Truly, may we all hear Jesus' heart for sinners like us in these words of forgiveness. Nash says, forgiveness does not come cheap. Forgiveness acknowledges sin and hurt and brokenness and pain. It does not ignore the hurt or pretend everything is back to how it used to be. Instead, it absorbs the hurt and the cost. Jesus did not forgive with mere words. He forgave on the cross. Forgiveness was infinitely expensive. Jesus gave his life. He embraced the cross out of love. He did that for you. His action resonated within his heart. His heart was one of compassion, not rancor or rage or revenge. We eavesdrop on his plea for forgiveness at the cross and hear his heart of mercy. He has a fierce love for wayward people. Do you believe that? Because it's true. So when you sin, how do you view God in those moments? I think we should picture Christ being crucified and see the heart of God in that with arms outstretched, crying out not for vengeance, but crying out for mercy. Like don't give in to self-condemnation because Jesus isn't condemning you. By the way, that's not just Jesus and, and God the Father is different. Jesus reflects the heart of God to us. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And there is nothing we can do, whether in our minds or hearts or with our mouths or our bodies, that is beyond the reach of Jesus' prayers or beyond the reach of God's forgiveness. Nothing. Really, there is no one beyond his reach. As Jesus prayed, he was practicing what he preached in Luke 6. Love your enemies. 
Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. At Calvary, he didn't pray for virtuous, upright people. He prayed for sadistic murderers. He prayed that the Father would show mercy on even them. They weren't beyond him. And seeing his example, may the Spirit empower us to follow it ourselves. I guarantee we will see plenty of people still mistreating our Lord today. Father, forgive them. It should cause us to see no one as beyond his mercy. Some of you have loved ones or friends who are far away from Christ right now. Don't give up on them. Keep praying. Hear Jesus praying over them. Father, forgive them. And may that fill our eyes with compassion. Fill our mouths with the gospel. Don't don't forget where you came from. We were all once enemies of the cross of Christ. We were all actively hostile toward God and his ways, opposing his rule over us. We corrupted his creation. We flaunted his laws. We spat in his face. But it was right there at our lowest point, while we were yet sinners, that God demonstrated his astounding love for us and Christ died for us. We all need forgiveness. Kids need forgiveness. Seasoned saints need forgiveness. And everyone in between. And Jesus' cry here tells us we have his forgiveness. If we'll have it. And if we can keep this gospel truth in the forefront of our minds, that we are forgiven sinners, it should help us follow Jesus' example of forgiveness as well. Like his words have been echoed by his followers throughout the ages. Stephen, as he was being stoned, prayed, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. James, the brother of Jesus, was thrown from the roof of the temple, but didn't die right away. He rose to his knees and is said to have prayed, I beg of you, Lord God our Father, forgive them. They do not know what they are doing. In more recent times, Ugandan Bishop Fesso Kivinger saw the violent dictator Idi Amin wreak havoc in his home country, killing many of his closest friends in the process. Later, he wrote a book called I Love Idi Amin in which he said, on the cross, Jesus said, Father, forgive them because they know not what they do. As evil as Idi Amin is, how can I do less toward him? No, we won't likely have anyone crucify us or even necessarily want to kill us anytime soon. (laughs) But we will absolutely have plenty of people who mistreat us to varying degrees, And it's this very act of Christ on the cross that provides the impetus, the motive for us to forgive. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. 
if God forgave the people who crucified his beloved son, which includes us, by the way, how could we not forgive those who hurt us? How could we do any less? But do we forgive them? Do we really forgive them? Or do we run away from the pain or the conflict? Or maybe do we brush it off and act like nothing happened that needs to be dealt with? That's disingenuous or even dishonest. It's certainly not forgiveness. Do we make the choice to not count someone's sins against them? To not hold a grudge? Do we decide that we won't bring it back up or hold it over their heads? There may still be a need in some situations for for boundaries, for wise boundaries to protect you from further abuse. But will we forgive even the worst evils done to us as our Lord forgave the worst evils done to him? Will we forgive others when they don't know what they're doing to us? Or worse, when they do know, they do it anyway. Jesus is our perfect example of forgiveness, even in the midst of unimaginable pain. Like, I can't pretend to know what you've experienced in life or how badly you've been hurt, but I do know that it was less than what Jesus went through. Can you hear him praying, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do, and say in your heart, Jesus, help me do the same. a good prayer to pray even right now. God, this seems impossible. Help me. Knowing Jesus' forgiveness can give us power to forgive from our hearts as well. Our natural inclinations are to fight back, to hurt in return, or to curl up in a ball of self-pity. It's not easy to choose forgiveness while people are mistreating you. Eric Raymond says, When I sense that I've been wronged, I tend to feel the most justified in being ugly with people. This feels like the time for self-vindicating judgment, not self-sacrificing forgiveness. By the grace of God, we can grow to be people who are, not, who are willing to forgive others even in the most heated times because we worship a Savior who does this very thing. Jesus is the model and motivation for our forgiveness. So I hope, I hope you leave here hearing the words, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do, being pronounced over you. Embrace it today. Fully assured of the love of Christ. Rejoicing in it. Like, don't remain in the shame of whatever's happened in your past. Long before any of that happened, Jesus said, Father, forgive. Don't be afraid of being found out as a failure. Welcome to the club. Your sin. Your guilt, your shame, and their accompanying anxieties can be obliterated by the cross of Christ once and for all. 
experience forgiveness, and then extend it to others as freely as it was extended to you. Because this is Jesus' attitude toward you this day. He's still praying for us in heaven. Standing before his father's throne and saying, Father, forgive them. And not just because we're ignorant, but because his blood was shed. Atonement has happened. Like, look at my atoning sacrifice, Father. Their debt's paid in full. So, Father, forgive them. Cleanse them. Pour out your grace on them. Forgive them so they can know what they ought to do. Father, please show us your forgiveness and then work your forgiveness through us today. We pray for the sake of Christ and in the Spirit's power. We ask for your help. In Jesus' name, amen.